thank you for listening to this Calvary Aurora Bible study with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. Amen. Open your Bibles to John chapter 17. We are going through the Gospel of John together, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, growing in our understanding of walking with Messiah, learning from him. I like to place myself in my imagination, walking with him, listening to him, watching him, all the sights, the sounds, the smells, the the situations. And now we've come to chapter 17 where we are listening to the king pray. We're getting insight on prayer. And I know that when we refer to the Lord's Prayer, almost everyone immediately thinks of our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And that, that is referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And I have nothing against that. But it's really not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. It's how they were taught to pray. If you want to find the Lord's Prayer, you're going to find it in at least two places. The first one is here in chapter 17. And the other one is when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. That, that's the Lord's Prayer. that's where we listen in on the king. And he starts out his prayer very different than we normally pray. He starts out by not folding his hand, bowing his head and closing his eyes, but rather in a company of many people, he lifts up his eyes, keeps them open, and he prays out loud so that he can talk with the father in intimacy, but then every one of us that are around him can listen in and learn what was on the heart of Jesus right before the cross, what was on the heart of Jesus right before his betrayal and and how everyone turned against him and ran away from him and how he was beaten and how he spit upon and how the crown of thorns was twisted into his skull, how he died a horrific, torturous death of a criminal as an innocent man buried and he rose again what was on his heart what was on his mind and we looked at the first few verses the last time we were together so let's pick up where we left off in verse five just to overlap our studies and now O father glorify me together with yourself with the glory which i had with you before the world was i have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world they were yours You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So Jesus came to manifest the name of the Father. He came to reveal. If you haven't already, circle the word manifest, and right next to it or on top of it, reveal, or to shine forth. That's what something is. When something is manifested, light is shown on it. And Jesus, he didn't reveal the Father in one fell swoop. He didn't come and just give a one-hour seminar on who the Father was, but rather little by little, day by day, act by act, word by word, life experience, he revealed the Father through him so that he could say, if you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the Father. He revealed it little by little, both in word and in deed. That's an important concept to understand in word and in deed. He didn't just say to them and speak the manifestation of the Father, but he did the manifestation of the Father so that his actions met, his actions met his words. Because when your actions don't meet your words, there's a Bible word for that. What is it? Hypocrite. 
So let me give you, now I'm giving you the answer. Let me do the quiz again. When your actions don't meet your words, there's a Bible word for it. What is it? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Nobody likes to wake up on Sunday morning and talk about being a hypocrite. But we are. Because I don't want you to be a hypocrite. As a follower of Jesus Christ, it's God's heart that you're not a hypocrite. That you don't say one thing and do another. That that you don't come to a gathering like this and put on a show of appearance and then I don't know when it changes. I don't know if it's a last amen. I don't know if it's when I start talking. I don't know if it's during the last song. I don't know if it's when Pastor Ian puts his guitar away. I don't know if it's when you walk out the building. I don't know if it's when you get in your car. I don't know if it's when you start driving down Hampton. Or I don't know. But for some... There is a change of behavior where what you say is not matching, what you say is not matching your words and your actions. They're not coming together. And so there is hypocrisy. And it's unfortunate, but so many people say, I don't want anything to do with the things of the Lord. I don't want anything to do with church because it's filled with hypocrites. And in many ways, that's a true statement. I think there's a little bit of hypocrisy in all of us. Unfortunately, it's the human condition. We need to pray and we need to lay our lives down before the Lord so that we don't live hypocritical lives. That our words, because it just doesn't work. I'm going to tell you, especially to you parents right now, this doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not going to do what you want accomplished. It's not going to happen. The end result is going to be hard, negative, and difficult if you parent your kids like this. Do as I say, but don't do as I do. It doesn't work. Little life lesson today. It doesn't work. Especially for those of you that name the name of Jesus Christ. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You, can't, you are ruining your kids. And you're ruining the witness of Jesus Christ. If you think that you are going to produce godly children by saying do and by living this way. You may never say, well, I'm off the hook because I don't say that. I don't say those words. But do you live them? Because it doesn't work. The roads of, of life and church life are, are scattered with the broken lives of kids that lived in homes where their parents did one thing and said another. Churches hurt people because their leaders say one thing and do another. And we need the Lord to deliver us from this nonsense and come back to, I've manifested your name to those that you have given me out of the world. I like that word give. Jesus speaks of possession. We have been given, the disciples have been given to Jesus. That means you belong to him. In another place in the Bible, it speaks of us being bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. And so he's saying, these guys that you have taken, another great phrase in that verse is out of the world. You have been taken out of the world, which is a difficult thing to, con- to consider because we still live in the world. So we've been taken out of the world, but we still live in the world. And you just need to get your, get, get your thoughts straight. You've been taken out of the world spiritually, but you are still in the world physically. And now living as a believer in a hostile environment requires a submission and surrender to the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus, this is on his heart as he's praying. His last final words, some of his final words in prayer in intimacy to the Father is, man, I've done what you've asked me to do with these guys. 
I fulfilled your call with this group of people. It's so good to be able to say that. Not only that, but notice at the end of verse 6, he says something that is interesting as well. He says, he looks at his disciples and he says, they've kept your word. He's talking to the Father here in this high priestly prayer. And he says, they have kept your word. Really? Because the Bible that I'm studying, when I look at these guys, man, I don't quite see them keeping his word. Do you? I mean, think of Peter. How many things that are recorded for us from Peter's life? I mean, didn't Jesus turn around to Peter and say, get behind me, you holy, mighty man of God? No, he didn't say that. He said, get behind me. See, he called the dude Satan. But he kept his word. Or how about the sons of Zebedee? We know them as James and John. We remember the time where they were filled with holy, righteous piety and wanted to kill people. Take them out. In Jesus' name, of course. And what did Jesus nickname them? The sons of love and kindness and joy. No way. What are they called? The sons of thunder for good reason. They were a little messed up. But these guys kept it. Let's broaden it for a little bit. Let's, let's, let's open it up, not just to the disciples, but what about David? David go down, goes down in history as a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart? The David? David, the failure as a father? David, the person that didn't always tell the truth? David, the person that saw a woman and lusted after her? David, the one that committed adultery? David, the one that conspired to murder? David, the one that helped to carry it out? David, the one that... Shall I go on? And he goes down as a person after God's own heart? How about Rahab? She goes down, if you read through and you're looking for Rahab in the Old Testament, she's Rahab the pure. Oh, oh no, she's not. She's Rahab the, the harlot, the prostitute. And on and on that list can go. So I learned something from this. And so do you. Evidently, God, God sees things differently than you and I do. Because I know, I know in my own life, I have a tendency to see things, well, I have a tendency to see my own mistakes. You know, ever since my son passed away, I wasn't a real big journaler, but even starting one, he was in the hospital and I spent the night with, all night with him. I started journaling and I'm so glad I did to write my thoughts down. And, you know, one day somebody's going to read my journal after I pass on and go to, I'm sorry for whoever reads it because you're going to find out things about me that you really, you're just going to be, what? You thought what? And you went through What? And you said, what? And I say, yes. But then some of you are putting a journal together. I don't want to read yours either, so we're good. (laughs) But the raw, some of what I write is raw. Some of what I'm writing out in prayer is just hard. And and all I, there's seasons in my journal. I'm sure if I charted them and put them into a graph or something, there'd be some really neat highs and then there'd be really deep lows where all I see is my own faults and my own failures and all I see is my own weaknesses and all I see is my own difficulties and my own stupidity and my own just, just all of that. And I wonder if you're not the same where it's easier for you to see your faults and failures than it is. Let me tell you, when Jesus sees you, sister, when Jesus sees you, brother, When Jesus sees you and me, he says, they've kept my word. 
That's pretty encouraging to me. We need to learn how to see ourselves in that same way. To look for the good in ourselves and in others. To not walk under the level of condemnation, but by faith to accept the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And not to condemn ourselves. Because the enemy loves to condemn. The enemy loves to lie. He loves to throw accusations around. But, but that's not the Lord. When the Lord prays and he prays for you, he tells the Father, they kept my word. And where they have failed, failed, I have gotten them back up. That's what the Bible says. Though a man falls seven times, he'll rise again. Some of you can't see good in you so bad that you think about, well, wait a minute, it says seven times. What if they fall the eighth time? But it's a principle, not a number. <laughs> Just like when Jesus was teaching forgiveness, 70 times seven, it's a principle, it's not a number. The idea is no matter how much you fall, the Lord is there to pick you up. And I like that. God sees you differently than you even see yourself. And it's good to see ourselves at the eyes of Christ. But really, if I had to say, what was it that kept them staying strong? What was it, even in their failures, what was it that, that at the end of their life they could be looked at and say, I've kept my word, is Jesus is finishing his life on earth and he's praying to the Father. What was it? What, what is it for you and me that we can stay strong in the things of God? And even if we fall and even if we fail and even if we aren't able to see anything good, but we can only see the bad, what's the key to get out of it? One word, Repentance repentance. I believe that they understood repentance. You really see that between the life of Peter and the life of Judas. Because Peter repented unto the Lord and God used him greatly. Judas repented to himself and his life ended tragically. It's a whole different Bible study altogether. But here's the deal. Repentance is very important. And like love, it's often misunderstood. Love, you know, when I mention love, automatically there's thoughts of romance and your favorite chick flick and love, oh, love and hearts and all bubbles and everything great about love. But love is not primarily an emotion. Love is an action. And it's not so romantic as an action. Love is an action. That's what the Bible says. For God so loved the world that he felt really good for you. No, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave. He acted on it. 1 Corinthians 13 describes love and the actions of love. Galatians speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Love is an action. Repentance is also not an emotion. It's an action. You can't just feel bad about something. You need to feel bad enough to change. That's repentance. Feeling bad can be known as self-pity. Feeling bad enough to change, that's repentance. And so do away with these words in your vocabulary, would you? Please stop telling people, I'm sorry. Now, I don't want to get all technical, and I understand that you can say sorry and mean it, but most of the time, when somebody says, I'm sorry, they're just trying to get out of it, trying to wiggle out of it. I'm so, you know, you'll hear something like, I'm so sorry that what I said made you hurt so bad. What do you mean? It's not about me hurting. It's about what you said. You lied about me. You, 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 you called me a name to my face. You talked about me behind my back. It's not about how I felt. You sinned against a holy and righteous God and against me. It's more than I'm just sorry. I was raising my kids. We taught my kids, don't say I'm sorry. Instead, instead say, will you forgive me for punching you in the face and causing much blood to get on mom's carpet? But you get the point. 
Will you forgive me? And then insert the sin that you did to the other person. Don't make excuses. I'm so sorry that you got me so mad. And would you please forgive me because you got me so mad that I'd punch you in the face. That's not repentance. And, and it's sad that that's what it's become today. Again, overlapping this little theme of parenting, your parents need to see you repent. It's not enough to say, I'm just so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Your parents, your kids need to see you repent. Just like this whole idea of saying and doing, not matching up isn't going to work. If you don't repent in front of your kids, that's not going to work either. It's like, oh, you just made me so mad that daddy had to throw the chair at you. No. And that's, that's violent. That's criminal. It's not from the Lord. You get down, if your kids are still young, you get down on your knees, you look them in the face and you say, will you please forgive daddy? for being so angry and out of control. I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against God, and I want you to pray for me. Your kids will just absolutely respond in a positive way. They'll probably run upstairs and say, you will not believe what Dad just did. We've been praying for him, and praying for him, and praying for him, and today was the day that God answered our prayer, and he asked for forgiveness, and I forgave him, and we cried, and I laid hands on my own dad, and I prayed for him. Listen. God can turn something so evil around for good if you, dad and mom, just walk in the spirit, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Repentance. Repentance. Because none of us are perfect. When you think of, they kept my word, don't think of it as, man, we all are perfect. We all have everything together. You know, we don't. We stumble and fall so much we don't even pay attention sometimes. The reason why we can see so many things in our lives is because there is so many things in our lives and yet God still loves us. And he thinks is the best of us. And he's taking us to a higher plane. He's taking us from glory to glory and strength to strength. He's not taking us from glory to the gutter. He's not dismissing you and throwing you away, but rather wants to wash you with the water of the word. And he wants to apply the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive you and strengthen you and give you hope and give your kids hope and give your grandkids hope and give your neighbors hope and change your community one person at a time before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's in Jesus' prayer here. Not only that, notice, it says in verse 8, For I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them, and known surely that I came forth from you, that they believe that you sent me. Next to this verse, in verse 8, you could write the word discipleship. This is one of the best definitions of discipleship in all of the Bible. And I'm going to give you another one before before we go, because this is where we're going to end our time today. Discipleship. I hear so much talk about discipleship and material, discipleship materials and discipleship classes and mentors and coaches and on and on and on and on. Listen, the Holy Spirit is your discipler and this is how it works. You hear from the Lord, you do it, and then you tell someone else. That's discipleship. Bible study is a part of it. Maybe getting together with another person is a part of it. But you receive, that's what Jesus says, I've given them the words that you gave me, Father. So he received words from the Father. He gave them away. They received them and went out and did them. That's discipleship. That's spiritual maturity. 
Spiritual maturity is not measured by how many times you go to church, how many prayers you pray, how, how, how long you've been a believer, how much of a history your family has walking with the Lord. None of that is maturity. Maturity is measured by simply your level of obedience. That means that a person could be walking with the Lord for 25 years and be immature. <laughs> wow. Think about that today. The Broncos aren't playing. You got all day today. You got the rest of the year, so what I hear. Maybe five or ten. No, I'm just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. But man, I had to get some that laughter in here because you, somebody, you're going to throw something at me. Or There's a lot of tension when we're talking about these things. But listen, God's heart is, your, is for you to grow in grace. That's why somebody that's a new believer can be so mature because they're just simple. I heard it, I did it. I heard it, I received it, I did it. I heard it, I received it, I did it. That's the model of ministry. That's the model of discipleship. Listen, that's the model of church growth. It's not programs. It's not fancy flyers. It's not, you know, taking the modern day movies of the day and putting together some five minute Bible study and then showing movie clips on a screen. I mean, seriously, people don't need movie clips. You need the word of God. You get enough of the world during the time that you're in the world. When you're taken out of the world, man, you need the word. You need to grow in grace. And if a pastor or two are just on your way home from service right now listening to radio, please just pray and ask the Lord to confirm to you to give your people the word of God. Give them the word of God on a steady diet. Feed them the meat. Give them a few bones to chew on. Put the Brussels sprouts on there. Because talking about hypocrisy on Sunday morning is like Brussels sprouts there. It's just nasty. It's like horrible. It's like, why, why did God, that, they're from the fall. They're like thorns, <laughs> Brussels sprouts. They're from the fall. But that's a healthy spiritual diet. You know, you get the fun stuff about love and grace and, you know, the real meaty stuff. Or for you vegans out there, you know, tofu, whatever, tofu steak. If that's what you like, I guess, enjoy it. I don't judge you. <laughs> Take care of your temple. Use it for the glory of God. But if you like meat, you like a well-rounded meal, you need to be in a church that's going to give that to you or you'll never grow. You'll sit in church your whole life and never grow and wonder why. Because you're sincere, you're genuine. You can be in a church like this that teaches the word and still never grow. Why? Because it requires your response. You have to obey. If you don't obey what God tells you to do, you will stunt your spiritual growth and all the while have the appearance, what the Bible says, the you will have an outward show of, of holiness, but you'll deny the power thereof. You'll actually look like a believer. You might even sound like a believer, but you don't live like a believer. Therefore, you are conflicted. And this is discipleship. And this is something that we have, we really need to understand in the life of our congregation that we really need a grasp of fresh and anew. Let me show you. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2 with me, would you? 2 Timothy, it's to the right from where you're at. Chapter 2. Because this is what happened here. This is what has happened in our own congregation. You know, Paul caught the vision of Jesus. He caught the discipleship visions, just like Peter did, just like James did. Uh, You and I are saved today because believers throughout the ages caught this vision from Jesus and they've replicated it all the way down to today to our little fellowship on this little corner of dirt in Colorado. 
God has, and, and now we get to replicate it beyond ourselves until the coming of the Lord. But, but here's the thing. Here's what Paul says. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That, that is discipleship. The things that you heard, receive them, internalize them, and then commit them to faithful men that they can teach others also. It's all packed in this verse. This is how churches grow. This is how families grow. This is how marriages grow. This is how singles grow. This is exactly the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. This is why this church exists today because this took place starting with a man by the name of Chuck Smith back in the late 60s. Back in the late 60s, the generation that was lost back then are known as the hippies. Some of you were a hippie. Some of you might still be a hippie. I wasn't a hippie. I wasn't even born by the time the hippies were there. But I do know this. The life I was living apart from Christ, if I was alive during the hippie days, I probably would have been one. They just checked out on life and were anti-everything and lost as lost could be and pushed outside of the traditional church. But God, unbeknownst to anybody, wanted to do a work in those hippies and their families because hippies have moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas. Some of them had jobs, so they had co-workers. They had drug dealers that they bought from. They had people that hung out on the, on the beach with. They went to Woodstock together. They were around people because God is in the people-saving business. And so what did God do? He found a man. His name is Chuck Smith. He wasn't the only man. He wasn't the only man that was, God was using, but from our fellowship family, our lineage was Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith started teaching the Bible and gathered together a group of men, just like Jesus did, that were imperfect, that were, which you'd scratch your head thinking, how could God use them? How could God possibly use them? But God wanted to use them. They got saved. They started teaching the Bible, praying together, singing together. Guys would go out and plant churches. And a guy by the name of Jeff Johnson, he came in and got saved during that time and started associating with Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa with Chuck Smith. And he went to a city called Downey, California, started a Bible study. And people were gathering together and they went from building to building. And in 1991, a punk walked into that very church that Jeff Johnson was pastoring and he sat in the back and he listened to Bible study just like this. And week after week, he would hear about the love of God. And God finally grabbed his heart. And he was born again right there in that Calvary Chapel. And he spent, there for, spent time there for eight years and raised a family, eight years within that church. And God finally spoke upon his heart and confirmed it for them to move here, right here to Colorado and do the same thing all over again. The things that I heard and received, I'm to now teach them, commit them to faithful men and women so they can go off and teach others. And that's the heritage of our church. That, and, and that is then, it didn't end with me. It's not like that because we've sent so many out to plant churches and hopefully they're doing the same thing now. We've got missionaries out right now. We've got missionaries praying about leaving. We've got people going out into their communities, starting something in apartment buildings, starting something at work, little Bible studies, little prayer groups and all over. And you're doing the same thing over and over and over. You see, they called that move in the 60s, reaching the hippies, they called it the Jesus movement. But I want you to know the Jesus movement isn't Calvary Chapel. It isn't the vineyard. It isn't Methodism. It isn't Presbyterianism. It isn't anything that we try to make it. The Jesus movement is Jesus. Nobody replaces Jesus, church. 
Nobody replaces Jesus. You got that? No man replaces Jesus. No woman replaces Jesus. No movement replaces Jesus. No church replaces Jesus. No marriage replaces. Should I go on? Nobody replaces Jesus. Say that with me. Nobody replaces Jesus. Period. I don't replace Jesus. You don't replace Jesus. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Period. That's the end. Author and finisher of our faith. But here's the thing. We're human. And in our humanity, we make big mistakes when it comes to movements of God. It's actually a pretty predictable pattern. We looked at already some of it. It starts, usually movements of God start with a man. If you're taking notes, jot these down. I want you to remember these. This is important for us as a church family. It's important for our city. It's important for moves of God. It starts with a man, like like it says in 2 Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles, it says that God's, his eyes are going to and fro throughout all the earth, looking for somebody he can show himself strong on behalf of. And it starts with a man. And then through that man that's passionate and sold out to the things of God, he starts to gather people around him. And as he's teaching and loving and serving and outreach, you know, just constant outreach, constant outreach. That's, that's the life of our church, just constantly looking for ways to reach our community, constantly doing things to reach our community. There's a group together, gathered together by God, and that man becomes number two, a movement. And that's an exciting stage to be a part of. The movement Man, the Lord's working here, the Lord's working there, saving him, saving her. It's amazing, a movement of God, a powerful move of God. And, and it's in that movement that God does great things and it begins to grow and a ministry begins to go forward, laboring in love. God's grace is poured out. A people are getting saved. But then there's a third stage where the man and the movement become a, well, become a machine. And the man's passion gets drowned out by the work and by the expansion, and by the tendency to formalize and box in the work. And the man, as he entrusts ministry to other people, don't properly represent the Holy Spirit. And they stifle the Holy Spirit. And they quench the Holy Spirit. And, and then, before you know it, there's God still doing something, but it's not as exciting as being waiting on the Lord anymore, because now it's just, well, what's so predictable? And, and it's just a machine. We're just going through the motions. And before you know it, over time, it don't even really notice it. The man that God used to start a movement that kind of became static and be a machine turned into a monument looking back at the man that God used so many years ago. That's always a sad place. I mean, don't think for a moment that it couldn't happen to us. It could. I look back, I look back at the work of God in the past with great respect, but I don't worship the past. The, the thing about the monument stage, you know you're in the monument stage when these words start to come out of your mouth. You ready? I remember the good old days. Really? You remember the good old days? Really? The good old days. What were these? Well, you know, back in 1957. <laughs> you got to say it that way. You go back that far. I remember when and I remember when. Do you know the Bible? Brother reminded me of this after first service. Do you know the Bible forbids that? Let me show you what I mean. Turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The Bible forbids this. When we look back, we need to look back with respect. But we have to look forward, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We don't make a monument out of the work of God. We don't want to make a monument of the man that God used in his ministry, 
and the monument of the movement, we want to keep looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you couldn't find it, I'll just read it to you. You can jot it down. Verse 10. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 10. Do not say. Okay, Solomon, what are we not supposed to say? Why were the former days better than these? That's in your Bible. Why were the former days better than these? If you find yourself thinking of the good old days are better than these, or the former days are better than these, that's a time for a heart check. Because the reason why the former days are better than these is because somewhere along the way, you have wandered away from the power of the Holy Spirit. And I have wandered away. Don't think for a minute it can't happen to us or our movement family of churches. It can, and it will. And we have to keep our eyes on the Lord and just worship him and love him and obey him in the process of discipleship. The the reality is, is that there is a danger of a monument ministry. We have an example of that in the Bible. Look it up in the book of Revelation, the church in Ephesus. Compare the postcard in Revelation to the church in Ephesus to the book of Ephesians. What happened in 30 years? They left their first love and they needed to repent remember from where they have fallen repent and return and repeat the first works that might be a word of the lord for some of you but it's even worse than that man movement machine monument it gets worse because a monument ministry that's always looking backwards Hard to move. The Spirit of God can't move in that ministry anymore. Can't shift, can't guide, can't direct because the monument many times can't be moved. Why? Because monuments almost always are set in stone. (laughs) Set in stone, man. We don't want that. So the whole process, God often has to go beyond the static to go do a new work and find another man that's not so restricted and be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. But we can always be that man. We can always be that woman. But it gets worse because the monument becomes a mausoleum. What I mean by that is churches simply become buildings containing the spiritually dead. Yes, they gather week after week. They sing songs. They give offerings. They might sign up for a few things here and there. They have an appearance of life, but inside they're filled with dead men's bones. Over and over and over again, Jesus condemned the Pharisees for having an appearance of spirituality, but being dead inside. And over and over again, the Holy Spirit does the same thing with us when we lack spiritual life in our lives. I don't want to be a part of a mausoleum. God didn't save me. He didn't save you. He didn't enlist us in ministry to become mechanical and religious. He didn't save us. He didn't begin a movement for it to fizzle out because we want to organize it now and, and we want to you know that we want to put everything together and not be open to the work of the Holy Spirit and not live lives of obedience. And it's a word of the Lord for us over the years you know because now we're 17 years old and, and we have a few things now that we didn't have before but what we have makes no difference whatsoever. Zero compared to what we have in the Holy Spirit. God doesn't define us by our building, even though we have one now. I just met a family that was here. They're, they're back. Uh, as I was greeting, they were here. The last time they were with us was in the school. 
So things have considerably changed in the last few years of what God has done. But that doesn't make us any more usable or any less usable. It's our commitment to the Holy Spirit, our commitment to the Lord, to receiving what Jesus says and then giving it away. Things that were committed to us, we give them away. Things that we've heard, we give them away. Just like, G- just like Paul said, Paul's not replacing himself with, uh, replacing Jesus with himself when he says the things you heard from me because he heard from the Lord. He spent years of personal discipleship with Jesus because he said, remember every communion, we use this verse, the things that I receive from the Lord, I give to you. And that's the true emphasis of discipleship. The things that we receive from the Lord, we give to you. That's the key. What's not from the Lord is not for the Lord. It's not for his church. The life of a church, the life of a believer is not the function of a lot of things that we try to make it. Just because we have a building doesn't mean we're a real church. The presence of the Holy Spirit makes us a real church. We're the church. It's not the building. It's not the, the things that we have. We don't need any of these things. We use them as tools. Sure, of course. Opportunity to reach more. Of course. Opportunity to have a school for the kids. Of course. Opportunity to engage in worship. Yes. But we don't need any of this stuff. We don't need any of it. We just need the Lord. Isn't that what you had when you got saved? Just have the Lord. That's it. It's not the building. It's not the technology. But I mean, you have to understand something Time is marching on. So we need to adapt ourselves to the culture that we're in. Like, like the way that we reach people has to change. We can't be going sending you down to uh, the bookstore so you can get your eight-track tape of the message, you know. Okay, after the Bible study, some of you don't even know what eight-track tape is. So let's go to cassettes. All right, let's go to cassettes. You know, we don't go down to go make sure you get your cassette. You go, what is a cassette? Oh, well, let's make sure you go down and get your CDs. We're still using CDs, but those are going. Now it's get your app. You can listen to the study within minutes on your app. You can forward it and send it and post it. And you like, we can't be stuck back in the day. So we have to adapt. We have to adapt to the culture that we're in. We have to adapt to the people that we want to reach. Ask any missionary. They'll tell you they adapt to the culture. You don't force a culture upon a culture. You become a part of the culture to reach the culture. That's the same in the United States. We have our culture. We need to reach the culture. So while, t- while methods might change, the gospel never, ever changes. Gospel never changes. And we're going to change the technology. We're going we're to use different stuff. And we're going to paint a wall and project on it. We're going to have screens. We're going to have cameras. Of course. It doesn't make us any better or any worse as a church. What makes us a church is our dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to become a man, a movement, and then a machine, and then a a monument. Sure, when we look back, we look back with respect. We don't remove the ancient landmarks. We acknowledge, just like your family, we acknowledge our family with all its faults and failures. But we spend, just like driving here, you spend most of your time looking forward, not backwards. You spend most of your time looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, or as I saw this morning, the Lord put on my heart when Paul talked about he's pressing onward, forgetting those things that are behind, he's pressing onward and upward for the call of Christ Jesus. And it's just so important that we grasp that. As a fellowship family, we're in a dangerous place. As a movement, we're in a dangerous place. But look at Jesus is bigger than any movement on the earth. Jesus is bigger than any revival. Jesus is bigger than any man he's ever used. Jesus is bigger than any woman he ever used. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when we tap into what he's doing on the earth, 
man, we're right in the middle of his will. And we need to stay there, church. We need to stay there. Well, Father, I thank you for the uh, opportunity just to be reminded this discipleship method. It's the method we follow here. And, you know, protect us. Protect us from making anything more important than you. Thank you for our heritage. Thank you for my pastor. I love him and his wife. I respect him. I honor him as the man that you put in my life. I serve alongside of him, do anything for him. Of course, if it wasn't sin, but I mean, I'm there for that brother. Not going to talk bad about him, not going to entertain that nonsense, but rather uplift his arms and be the Aaron and her in his life. And we don't need to worry about Pastor Chuck. He's in your presence right now, enjoying you more than we all are enjoying you. He made it. He finished his race. And we want to finish our race too. So guard and protect us, Lord. Fill us with love for one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Don't, don't allow us to expose the faults and failures in other people. Don't let us be the finger pointers. Don't let us, you know, when we see these large churches, these large movements, these large denominations that are doing things otherworldly, other unbiblical, Lord, now, now we call out the doctrine, but we pray for the leaders. We pray for these churches that be made into bars and the lofts, that it won't happen anymore that you will do a fresh work of revival before your soon return. And that, God, we would commit ourselves to you and live out not hypocritical lives, but lives surrendered to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone says amen. Let's stand together. And before we leave... We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.